Good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Christian Church. We're very blessed to have you this morning. This week we continue through the book of Acts. The last two weeks, we've seen two weeks ago, false faith from Simon the Magician, who attempted to come to Christianity for a, another trick in his bag of, of tricks to manipulate and gain some power. Last week, though, we saw saving faith with the Ethiopian eunuch. Today, we'll see saving faith triggered by true conversion. I'm going to have to say, in, in my ministry, there have been several inspirations and influences. John Calvin, the greatest expositor of Scripture who ever lived. Martin Lloyd-Jones, possibly the greatest pastor of the 20th century. James Montgomery Boyce, R.C. Sproul. Living today is Steve Lawson. And of course, the theologian of our day, Dr. John MacArthur. But all of them pale in comparison to first and foremost, Jesus Christ. No one has ever had a greater impact on humanity. But right after Jesus Christ, the greatest influence on my ministry, and dare I say the ministry of every pastor who desires truth in Scripture, is the Apostle Paul. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul authored 13 of the New Testament books. After Christ returned to heaven, Paul and his ministry became somewhat of a focal lead in evangelizing in the New Testament. A great portion of Acts, which is authored by Luke, is around Paul. Other than the book of John, Paul authored the other books that shape our theology, the very reach of the gospel, the deep understanding, very power and nature of it, which we understand Paul authored under divine inspiration. If ever there was an example or a model of a follower of Christ, it is, in fact, the Apostle Paul. The conversion of Paul is one of the greatest conversions of all time. But who was Paul? Paul was originally known as Saul. He was a hunter and persecutor of Christians. He was then known as the Way he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a Roman citizen, which meant that for a Jew to have citizenship, someone in their family had to do something for Caesar, and they earned Roman citizenship. And with Roman citizenship came the ability to demand an audience with Caesar if one was arrested. We will see Saul later in life as Paul use. He was educated as a Greek, and by grace he was saved. Now, I spoke about Paul many times over our first year. We went through his inspirational writings of the book of Romans, which lays out theology greater than any book written. And before we get into our text today, which covers his conversion, I want us to get a lead in. I purposely passed over this section of chapter 8 so to tie it in directly with our text today. Acts 8, 1 through 3. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And 
They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 1, we see here that Saul approved of his execution. This was Stephen, the disciples' execution, who had just preached to an angry mob. They became enraged and they stoned him. And Saul held the coats of those men and approved of their murder of Stephen. And that day a great persecution arose against the church. These people have killed, they have a bloodlust now for Christians. The hunting and killing and of followers of Christ, these would this would in those who would teach Christ as Messiah, they were now in grave danger. Everywhere they fled, there was immense persecution. Also in verse one. The Christian disciples had gone out into the world. They were no longer confined to Jerusalem. The apostles were still in Jerusalem, but the disciples went out into Judea and Samaria. It scattered because the persecution in Jerusalem had become, got, become so great. In verse 3, we see that Saul was ravaging the church. He was not merely ta attacking the beliefs verbally, the term ravaging was used to describe mutilation by a wild animal. Saul hated the church. Saul was well known not only by the Jewish council and leaders who sent him after these Christians, but also by the Christians. His name came with fear. It was intimidating. He was good at what he did. This was Saul, the ravager of the church, persecutor of Christians. And I want us to get a really good look at Saul, the person here, so we can get an understanding of where he is coming from in this. Saul was born in Tarsus. Tarsus is in Asia Minor outside Israel. So Saul was a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he a Jew from outside Israel. Tarsus was right on the border of modern-day Syria. It was known for its very prestigious university. It was one of the three great universities. The others were in Athens and Alexandria and Egypt. Tarsus was a metropolis. Saul's father was Jewish and a Roman citizen, which Saul himself inherited. Saul was a Jew by birth, by tradition, by education. Saul learned a trade of tent making. This was a big business in Tarsus. At 13 years old, Saul was sent to Jerusalem to study Judaism at the highest level. He studied under Gamaliel, a teacher so revered and respected that he was called the beauty of the law. Because the law was never more beautiful, they said, than when he taught it. Saul was under him for years, and then Saul would return to Tarsus, very legalistic, very rigid, very traditional, and zealous as a leader in a synagogue. When Stephen was actively preaching in Jerusalem, Saul was back in the city. He's very angry because Stephen, who was also a Hellenistic Jew from outside Israel, is preaching Jesus Christ in the Hellenistic synagogues. The church is growing in Jerusalem. Hellenistic Jews are being converted, and Saul hates this. His anger and his passion to destroy the Christian movement would lead him to rise to leadership and the movement to stop it. In Acts 26.9, 
Paul would later say, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He hated Christianity. This leads us to our text today, Acts 9. Verses 1 and 2, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues, at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He is hunting and chasing the Christians who fled for Jerusalem or from Jerusalem. He wants to, to raid Damascus because he knows there are some there. He's a rabid dog, a bloodhound. He is bloodthirsty, craving to get a hold of these that he believes are teaching heresy in the synagogues. This is a hatred. This term here, he's breathing. It wasn't breathing out, it's, it's breathing in. It's a meaning of breathing in like his very breath and life is dedicated to the destruction of Jesus' disciples. He hated Christians. He did not want to see them merely silenced. He wanted them dead. Look at Acts 26.11. Paul would say, And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blasphemy. Or blasphemy. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He had carte blanche to go anywhere and get them. When people say to me, what about murderers? Are you saying that someone who murders can come to Christ and be saved by Christ? Look at Saul. Look at Saul. I've given up hope for my spouse, for my wife, for my, for my husband, my father, my brother, my whoever. They just seem so far gone. They're so bitter. They have such a hatred towards Christianity and towards God. Look at Saul. His very heart beat and his breath was breathed in hatred for followers of Christ and their belief. He didn't want to argue with them. He didn't want to convert them. He wanted them dead. Look at verse 2. And asked them, him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He would arrest anyone, men or women. He was an equal opportunist. He was going to Damascus. The city of Damascus was around before Abraham. It was a large Jewish community. It had a large number of synagogues. At this time, it would have been believed to roughly had 150,000 people in it. Christians had gone there preaching in the synagogues. And these there was a, a newer convert who had been who was teaching those who were coming to Christ. His name was Ananias. And we'll see him next week in scripture. Paul would or Saul would arrest these, these Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem, where they would stand trial for being heretics and blasphemers. They would stand trial before the Sanhedrin and most likely be punished by death as Christ their leader was. Historians believe that from Jerusalem to Damascus was around a six-day journey north. So Saul and, and his group set out for this six-day journey north to Damascus to arrest followers of Christ. Verse 3 and 4. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? He's on his on the road to arrest these followers of Christ, bring them back to most likely be killed. And who does he run into? Jesus Christ himself. Now we know Jesus has ascended back into heaven at the beginning of Acts. And this, so this is a post-appearance of Christ's resurrection and Christ's ascension. But in verse 3, we have the first part of true conversion. Contact. Just like last week with the eunuch, where we see the sovereign hand of God work, moving all the pieces where it will, placing everything where they were to be for conversion. We see it here with the eunuch, the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch was on the desert road and God had placed Philip there. And the eunuch was coming from a, a very pagan culture, but he wasn't settled with the answers that he was getting from the pagan culture for his questions. And, and God had seen to it that in his hands he had found Isaiah 53, which is the gospel presentation from the Old Testament. And he's reading it, and he, his heart has been cultivated because the Holy Spirit has already been at work with this unit cultivating that soil, preparing it for the seeds. And he reads this Isaiah 53, and he doesn't understand it, but he knows there's something there, and he wants more. He's hungering for more. And so God sets it up, moves all the pieces so that there's contact. Philip goes over to the eunuch and says, do you know what you're reading? Ends up being invited into the chariot and giving the gospel presentation. Salvation is always the sovereign will of God. This is a unique experience for Saul. God did not merely call Saul. He exploded onto Saul's reality. Remember Stephen? This is... We're going to see God's sovereign hand working here. Remember Stephen back in chapter 7, the disciple who, who was stoned and executed and that Saul held the coats and then approved of it. Look back. Look at, at Acts 7, verse 56. And he said, this being Stephen, as he's being executed, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As Stephen is being killed, he sees Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Stephen prays for those executing him in Acts 7, 59-60. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He prays that his executors would be forgiven. So here is Saul, Stephen's lead executor, on the road to arrest more Christians, and he sees the same Jesus Christ that Stephen saw at his execution in which Saul was witnessing. And Jesus is about to forgive Saul, Stephen's lead executioner. This is awesome. This is God. This is solely and only the work of of God. We've seen the contact. Now in verse 4, we see conviction. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In true conversion, God always makes the initial contact, followed by conviction of sin. The sinner realizes the weight of his sin and his need for a Savior. 
Why are you persecuting me? Saul falls to the ground. He has been struck by the glory and the power around Christ. He's been not by his own power, but Christ knocked to the feet of his Savior. And then the question Jesus asked, why are you persecuting me? It's a very interesting question. Why? Because Jesus was in heaven. He wasn't on earth any longer at this point. But Jesus states here the stark reality that there is no separation from his people and himself. To persecute his followers is to persecute him. Christ is identifying himself with his body of believers. Saul was about to understand how all he did in attacking Christians, he was attacking Jesus. Listen, the anger you feel from those around you because of your faith, they're not attacking you. They're attacking Christ. Later in his life, Paul would be accepting of his persecution for his own faith and his multiple imprisonments because he understood he was now taking the hits for Christ. We as the body of Christ are so identified with Jesus that when one of us is attacked, persecuted, or martyred, that's felt in heaven. Jesus cuts right to the person here. Saul, why are you attacking me? The issue here is how you're treating Jesus. It's conviction. It's conviction of his sin. He's rejecting Jesus Christ. The, 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 the unforgivable sin is the rejection of, of Christ as Savior. To not repent and not believe is unforgivable. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. John 16.7 through nine. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Saul, Jesus says, you are persecuting me, rejecting me. Verse five. We see the conversion. We've seen the contact. We've seen the conviction. And now we see the conversion. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he, being Jesus, said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul asked, who are you, Lord? First, even if Saul had seen Christ before in Jerusalem, he would look different now because he was in his glorified state. Saul acknowledges here, though, that for the first, that Jesus is Lord. Who are you? Lord? That's how conversion happens. Conversion is not a process. It is instantaneous. One minute you are dead, spiritless, without hope. And then being God, having God breathed life into you, you are alive. You go from death to life. You go from dark to light. Jesus answers, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, it'd be easy to say after all Saul has done, he was converted quite quickly. But listen, his conversion was instantaneous after the contact and the conviction. But 
The Holy Spirit has been cultivating Saul all along. God's sovereign hand has been working in Saul's life all along, cultivating the soil. Saul was a studier. He was a theologian. He knew the Christian teachings. He'd heard them. He heard. He knew all their teachings came from the Old Testament, which being a theologian and a, a Jewish Pharisee, he knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He heard Stephen's sermon. He heard Stephen's dying words. So while he, at the time of hearing it, didn't get it, he believed it to be heresy. It was foolish to him. He took it to memory. And when Christ confronts him, when Christ makes the contact and calls him with conviction, it all makes sense to Saul now, and the dots are connected. This is how it happens to all of us. We can hear the gospel, and we can hear preaching all day, every day. And it does nothing for us. It may anger us, but when God breathes life into us, we are called, we are regenerated, and it starts coming together. Verse 6 through 9. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Verse 6, Jesus has just struck this man with his glory, just overwhelmed the great persecutor with glory and grace. Then he gives him instruction, as only Christ can do. Now notice in verse 7 that the men, this is somewhat police-forced-like group with Saul, heard the voice, but they saw no one. See, they could not see Jesus. Why? They could hear the words, but they couldn't see. This, this is what conversion is. It wasn't their time. Those who aren't being called or aren't being drawn, it's not their time for conversion. They can hear the word of God, but they can't see it. They can't understand it. They can't grasp it. They were still blinded to the truth. They were not converted. Now look at this. We get proof of Saul's conversion. We get confirmation. How? Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Saul is obedient to Jesus' instructions from verse 6. Saul, the once great persecutor, is now humbled and submissive. He has a new master. Conversion was immediate. Immediately recognized, he recognized Jesus as Lord. Immediately, he's submissive and obedient. Saul is broken. He's humbled. He's submissive. Three For three days, Saul sits without sight. The last thing he saw prior was Jesus Christ. How often do you think in those three days that he talked to Christ, that he prayed to Christ? He was a new creature. He was a new man. Saul had a lot on his mind. I mean, after everything he had done, the weight and the sorrow we can only imagine what he had to shoulder, and for three days in darkness, he had to dwell on it. Listen, salvation happens immediately. But for us, we need much time to investigate its depth in our life. Understand something, to convert to Christianity at this time made you an outcast. Everyone that Saul counted as a friend was now an enemy. Everyone that was an enemy is now a friend. 
He was the hunter. Now he's hunted. Everyone that he hunted is now his brother and sister in Christ. This is how radically changed a life called to Christ becomes. A converted life is a radically changed life. Listen, we need to stop telling people, Jesus wants to meet you where you are. That's nowhere in the Bible. He does not want to meet you where you are. Jesus calls you from where you are to him. He did not appear to Saul and go, Saul, I get it. You're, you're persecuting my people. You're chasing my people. You're arresting my people. You know what? Just take your time. I just want to meet you where you are. I'm going to ease you into this, Saul. No. It's immediate conviction. There's contact, conviction, conversion. It's immediate, radical change. On the flip side of that, God does not call perfect people when their life is together. He calls people who are in the mess of life due to their sin, and he calls them to have faith in him. And then he provides the faith they need. He demands faith, and he provides the faith. It is all God. No one's life will ever be in the perfect position to come to Christ because it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with God. Listen, if someone is feeling unworthy to worship when they say things like, I don't want to go to church until I get my life together. I don't want to go to church until I can straighten my act up. And oftentimes, so many Christians go, oh, no, you don't have to, you don't have to do that. God, Jesus just wants to meet you where you are. Listen, the fact that they're identifying that there are things in their life that are unworthy of God and that are unrighteous and that they feel unworthy to stand before God, that is conviction. We do not want to try to stifle that. We need to say, you are not worthy of standing before God. You are not worthy of worshiping a perfectly righteous God, and neither am I. And neither is anyone else sitting in that church. None of us are worthy of his grace and his mercy. None of us are worthy to be called. None of us are worthy to exalt and praise and worship him. So you're in good company. Because God doesn't call people who are worthy. Because then he would call no one. God draws unworthy people. And demands a faith that they cannot provide. So he provides it for them. This is conviction in their life. We need to tell them what it is. It's a good thing that you are identifying that there are things in your life that are unworthy of God. There's a good, it's good to identify the things that need to change. That is conviction. The conversion of Saul is one of the greatest snapshots, so to say, of what salvation is. It's immediate. It's powerful. It's miraculous. It's a dead, soulless sinner made alive. It is solely and only God. It is God's sovereign hand directing the salvation of every sinner. 
It is conviction for denying the Savior who lived, died, and conquered death so that you could know life and overcome death. And in the conversion of Saul, we see how God sovereignly leads everything to happen to bring about his will and be glorified. No matter how nasty a soul, no matter how much hatred, no matter how bitter, no one is beyond the gift of God's grace and mercy. I hear all the time, my husband hates Christianity. My son is so bitter towards God. I've given up hope on this person or that person of ever coming to the Lord. Look at Saul. No one is beyond being broken and humbled to fall at the feet of their Savior. No one is beyond the grace and mercy of God. No one is beyond being thrown before his feet to declare him Lord. We're unworthy of his grace and mercy, but no one is beyond his grace and mercy. Let's pray.